Welcome, welcome, everybody. I know it's pretty wet out there and parking was pretty rough, so to give a couple more people a little bit of a chance to come in, I want to do something really quick before we dive into the information. As best you can with your table, I want you to come up with, (laughs) even if it's two or if it's one, um, coming up with a brief description of your understanding of the Trinity. Doesn't have to be long, but just writing a brief statement about the Trinity. The reason to do this would be we all have two kinds of beliefs. We have embedded and evaluated beliefs. Embedded beliefs are those beliefs that we have because we grew up with them. And evaluated beliefs are the beliefs that we've tested. And so when you write this down, you're going to have a combination of both. And when we go through the information, it'll be a chance for you to say, oh, okay, this was what I thought, but this is what the Word says, or this is what's true, um, and now I have affirmed this belief that I've held on to. So come up with your best, uh, not an analogy or of the Trinity is like, but the, if you were going to describe the Trinity to someone in a, in a two-minute three-minute um, answer. How would you do that? I'll give you about two minutes to do this while we let some other people make their way in. All right. Start wrapping it up. All right. Have you got a basic definition? Basic? Something, something general? Have you thinking in that direction? Right on. Well, hey... Thank you for fighting through the weather and the difficult parking and everything else going on to be here. I, I definitely appreciate that and understand that you're taking a lot of time out of your own schedule to get here. And so I'm just going to, I just want you to know I want to avail myself to you all to help you however you can through this. If something is confusing, please raise your hand and ask questions so I can help us work through this a lot. A lot of people, when you talk about the Trinity, just say, well, you can't understand the Trinity, and so they don't even try to. But there are some things we can get our arms around with the Trinity. We're not going to fully get our minds around it, but there are some things where, that, some tools and some descriptions that we can understand of God and get our arms around. So we might as well do that. Um, quick review of last week. Well, this will work. Last week... Uh, we talked through, there we go, just how to study the Bible, observe, interpret, apply. Uh, if you walk through Duvall's book, it did a really simple breakdown of that method that really helps you work through it and get some more experience with it because it can be tough just going out and saying, well, okay, how do I observe, interpret, or apply this? But that really helped put some legs on it. Um, but it's really simple. Observe, hey, we're going to ask questions. What is our context? Who, what, where, when, why? Interpret, what does it mean? What is the timeless truth of this passage? And then apply, how do I use this? This week we're going to talk about the Trinity, the big one, the difficult piece that a lot of people, people's heads hurt talking about, and we're going to cover a lot of ground. Um, but really what we're asking with the Trinity is what is God like? What, what, is, what is God like in his being, in his essence? What, what is he like? To know the Trinity is to know God in his very person, to know who he is, which is important because to know who God is means we know who the creator is. It means to know ourselves. If we're made in the image of a triune God, if we know what we're made in the image of, we can know ourselves better, we can know the world around us better. It's a huge question. Trinity just means three-in-oneness. It's kind of a simple but vague way to say that. Three-in-oneness. And admittedly, the word trinity is not in a verse. There is no verse that says God is a trinity. That means he is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same, but they are all distinct. They are all God. There's no verse that says that. Um, it is something where we've taken a lot of different verses and put them together to really form this theology to help our own understanding. So we're going to start in the Old Testament. And we're going to work through, and we're going to look first at some Old Testament passages that point us towards the Trinity, then some New Testament passages that really help round it out. Then we're going to explain it, and then we're going to try to simplify it a little bit. So you can walk out of here with just some good bite-sized pieces of, hey, if someone asks me what the Trinity is, I have a 
I have a little nugget I can give to them um, where it's really helpful and easy. Old Testament. Well, first, Genesis. Genesis 1, after, before God is creating humanity, there's this really interesting word, us, in Genesis 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, what does that our and us mean? Does that mean there are multiple gods? Is that, well, I mean, a lot of people have questioned this, but the verse 27 is really helpful. Um, so God created mankind in his own image. So he's saying, let us make mankind in our image. And then he did this in his own image. It's a really interesting, okay, there's a plural, but then there's a singular. So God seems to be plural in some way. Um, going on to Genesis 3, and the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us. Knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat forever. So there's this us again. Jumping all the way ahead to Isaiah 6. And just to set up the context a little bit, Isaiah 6 is when Isaiah sees a vision of God in his temple. He sees God, and it's a really cool chapter of this is what the temple looked like. This is what God in all of his glory looked like. These were the angels and what they looked like. Um... And then God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. It's a really cool chapter just to sit down and read and work through. Um, because right before he says this, an angel, the angel of the Lord comes to Isaiah and cleanses him of his iniquity. And then he gets sent. It's just this cool picture of how God redeems and then sends. But yeah, there's this, whom shall I send? Whom shall, who will go for us? So... Okay, there's some idea of multiple in one going on in the Old Testament. Then there's this interesting character, the angel of the Lord. Now, every time the phrase angel of the Lord shows up, it's not referring to God. Most times it is just referring to an angel of God or a messenger. Um, The Hebrew word for angel means messenger, Moloch. But there are a couple of times when the angel of the Lord, a specific angel of the Lord, is called God. Like in Genesis 16, when Hagar is run out into the desert, um, and she's crying out to God for help. And then the angel of the Lord came to her and says, Go back to your mistress, Sarah, and submit to her. And she gave this name to the Lord. Okay, so this name, the Lord who spoke to her, the angel of the Lord. You are the God who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. So she's looking at the angel and saying, okay, this angel of the God is a divine being. This, this is God. Um, it's not a just normal angel. Um, that's why uh, the well is called Bir Lahai Roy, which means um, she calls God El Roy, the God who sees. So there is a being that is distinct from God, yet he is called God. Uh, Exodus 3, 2 through 6. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. So this is Moses in the burning bush. So the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in a burning bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, the fire did not stop and burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. So the angel shows up within the bush, and this bush is referred to as God in the bush. Judges 2, 1 and 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land. I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Now, no angel ever said, th- those are the words of God, that God spoke to his people saying, I, God, am making a covenant with you. But the angel of the Lord is saying this. Um, so there is an us that looks like one, and there's an angel of the Lord. Some people suggest that the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate Christ. 
that Christ is eternal, so this is the pre-incarnate. There's, we, can't, we can't prove that. We can't say that, yes, this is Jesus before he became flesh. We know that Jesus was eternal, that he didn't just appear in the Gospels. Um, we can't, we don't know for sure, but some people explain the angel of the Lord in that way. And then we also have the Holy Spirit. So you have the us but one, the angel of the Lord, a, a being that is called an angel, but he is referred to as God, and then the Holy Spirit showing up in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So God was there, but the Spirit, this separate, distinct person, seems to be hovering over the waters. Isaiah 63:10. Yet they rebelled, and they grieved His Holy Spirit, So he, God, turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. So God is referred to, and then the Holy Spirit. So there is this distinction showing up. Isaiah 48, 16, Come near to me and listen to this. From the first announcement, I have not spoken in secret. At the time it happens, I am here. And now the sovereign Lord has sent me, endowed with his Spirit. Again, the Spirit showing up. So in the Old Testament... There's not a verse that says, okay, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Jews don't hold to a Trinitarian God. So how do we get this understanding? Well, it's through the Old Testament. The Old Testament is revealing what what the New Testament reveals what the Old Testament has not fully explained. That in the New Testament, this whole idea of the Trinity is just going to explode, and you're going to see this all over the place. It's, and realize, it's not an idea that just came up later and we invented. This is something that they believed early on. So let's start at the beginning of, of the Gospels. John 1, you may have heard this term, the logos. Um, it's just a Greek word that means word. <laughs> um, and it's this Greek idea Um, and I'm not going to get too deep of it, but they just said, hey, there's some sort of power that holds everything together. There's some power that before time was there, and it created everything. And it's so miraculous, and it's so awesome, that we can't describe it in words, so we'll just call it the Word. And it just holds everything together. That's about all we know about it. And so John takes this idea and says, okay, so in the beginning was the Word. The Greeks would say, well, yeah, that's true. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's with God, and he is God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So all physical things have been made through this word, and he was with God, and he is God. And then down in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John puts literal legs on this idea and says, this is not just some sort of power, this is a person who was with God this is, and he goes on later in chapters to say this is Jesus. He is the Son of God who became flesh, who holds all things together. He is divine, and he is with God. Then Matthew three sixteen and 17, you have a really, for people who had, don't have any idea, you, you, remember what we talked about last week, context. So Matthew, written to um, written to Jews, talking to them about how Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. That they're reading this, they're looking at this situation, and they're seeing God revealing his whole Trinitarian self in one specific event. This is unbelievable. This is a huge, huge story that we shouldn't just pass over. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And the voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So look at the pieces we have. You have the Spirit 
descending down. So you have the sun in the water, then here comes God's Spirit. It's not just this idea of the feelings of God, that the Spirit comes down in a image of a dove, a physical thing, and the voice of God from heaven says, this is my Son, so He is a Father, saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all together at this instant in time. You see all three together, right in the Gospels, out of the get-go. And so all these ideas that you've seen developing in the Old Testament, okay, there's a Messiah who's going to come. God is going to say, this is my son. He's going to redeem everyone. Okay, we see the Spirit in the beginning, and we, see, we know that God's the Father. That's all over the Old Testament. Well, here is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together. This is God's Trinity all in one verse saying, aha, here it comes, boom. All the pieces just come together in Matthew 3, and it just takes off from here. You can even see it in Genesis 1, if you think about it, um, that you've got God, Father, there in the beginning, and the Spirit is hovering over the waters. And how does, how does God create in Genesis 1? He speaks. There is a word. That comes And the Word, remember John, the, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and through Him all things have been created. So creation is a Trinitarian miracle and event that all three parts of the Trinity have done together. So you can see it in Genesis 1, boom, beginning of the Old Testament, Matthew 3, beginning of the New Testament, boom, there's the Trinity again. Matthew 28, 19, I mean, says it pretty clearly. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That this is, yes, this is the mission of the church, and it is a Trinitarian mission. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all together. And then in the epistles, you just see this idea showing up over and over again in the greetings, in the benedictions of Paul's letters. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That these are all, there's a trinity there, but there's different parts to them. The grace of the Lord, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit. There's a distinction between the three persons of the Trinity. That they're all not doing the same thing, that they each have some sort of role in this greeting, in this benediction, in this prayer for the Corinthian church. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. So again, you see this idea of the Spirit is kind of related to a call of hope, one Lord that is a faith and in a baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. So how do we explain this? You've got all three parts. The Old Testament seems like the Old Testament was saying the same thing as the New Testament. I've heard this great phrase that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. I'm going to say it one more time because I can go kind of quick. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, teaching the same truths, but they appear concealed in the Old Testament. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So a lot of the Trinitarian truth that is in the Old Testament is fleshed out from the plain truths of the New Testament. When the apostles and um, everyone else is writing their letters in the New Testament, they're saying, here are the truths, here are what we believe, and it's all based on Old Testament truth. So they're not contradicting. It's this progressive revelation that over time we learn more and more and more about who God is in his word. So explaining it, oh gosh, Um, let's go, this this is where everyone says, okay, you can't explain it, give up now, you're done. Um, I I had a professor down in seminary, he said, hey, how do you explain uh, the Trinity to a six-year-old? Everyone's like, okay, good question, well, I'd say this, this, and he goes, well, how do you explain it to a 60-year-old? 
I mean, this is, this is complicated stuff. Well, yeah, it is. Um, let's go back to what we did at the very beginning. If you were here, it's not a big deal if you came in late. I know the weather and everything else was a mess. We're going to spend a little bit more time on this. Just writing down your best conception or your best explanation for the Trinity. Um, and we, we spent a little bit of time on the beginning, but I want to take some more time now where you can talk to people at your table and just say, hey, someone asked you to explain the Trinity, what would you say? So turn in with your tables. This time, if you have an analogy that you think would be beneficial, bring it up. Try to talk about how it explains the Trinity. Just try to explain it generally to each other. All right, let's come on back in. A couple of phrases that I heard just while walking around were, well, I, I've heard this. Well, I think it's kind of like this. Well, maybe he's like that. I, I think he's like, there, there wasn't a lot of clarity. right? I mean, would you all agree with that, that clarity is something we can all get from this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, talking about the Trinity almost more than any other theological area, people speculate a whole lot and say, I, I, it might be this, it could be this. Probably going back to that statement that a lot of people say, well, you just can't understand it, and so we don't investigate much or you don't hear much about it, um, particularly growing up in church, um, but it is a serious issue. So let me just do this. I'm going to give you the simple points up front, and then we're going to walk through it. That while you probably can't come up with a simple way to just wrap your arms around God and say, well, this is who he is, this is what he looks like, done, see ya. We are going to draw some boundaries around this area so that we can, there can be some push within the boundaries, but we're going to keep it in the Trinity in these walls, three walls, because it's Trinity and so you have to have three. Um, God is three distinct persons. There is distinction, number one. There is distinction between the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So we're going we're gonna to hold on to that. Each one, so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are each equal. They are each fully God. So they are distinct, and they are each fully God. And there is only one God. They are unified. So they are distinct. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. We'll get into all that. They are equal. They are fully God. There's not one that is lesser than another. And there is only one God. They are unified, three in one. So let's flesh each one of these out a little bit more. Distinction. God is three persons. The Son is distinct from the Father. Okay, so when we're talking about distinction, let's just say this. The son is not the father. Biologically, I've never met a son who is his own father. So you can, we can, but we're not going to stop there. We're going to go into it biblically. We're, we're going to look at, okay, the son is not the father. John seventeen twenty four. This is Jesus speaking. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, and I want to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. That Jesus is speaking to God, the Father, about their relationship. That they aren't the same person. That Jesus is not speaking to himself as if he was his own father. He is really praying to God, the Father. First John, John 2.1 My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So there's someone who's going to step in and be our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So Jesus is separate from the Father. The Son is distinct from the Father. The Father is distinct from the Spirit. God the Father is not God the Holy Spirit. Um. They, they are all God, but there is a distinction. The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. So that's Jesus talking to his disciples, saying, the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit. 
He's not sending himself. He is sending the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 27. And he who searches our hearts knows the minds of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So the Spirit searches our hearts and he intercedes for us. He is distinct from the Father. So the Son is distinct from the Father. The Father is distinct from the Spirit. And the Spirit is distinct from the Son. Spirit is not the Son. When the Advocate comes, who I will send to you, so this verse we just read, from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So Jesus is sending the Spirit from the Father. There is distinction that Jesus is not the Spirit, that there is distinction there. Um, So the Son is distinct from the Father, the Father is distinct from the Son, and the Spirit is distinct from the Son. So they are each their own unique person. They are three persons that are distinct from one another. So you can't say, well, this is Jesus, the Holy Spirit, or this is, uh, this is the Holy Spirit, the Son, that there is distinction there. But they are each fully God. We are going to say that each one is fully God. That God is the Father. Deuteronomy 32.6 talks about this, says um, this is a rebuke towards Israel um, in which God is saying, or it, it is said, are you not all children of the same Father, the one God? That he is, God the Father is fully God. Throughout church history, it was never, ever, ever, it's never been a question if God the Father was ever fully God. He's the one person in the Trinity where it's just like, yeah, got it, check, like, of course. Like, God the Father is fully God. That is apparent throughout the the Old Testament. Um, But for good measure, here's a verse just to give you some scriptural backing for this. 2 John 1, 3, Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in true love. So God, the Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. Um, 1 John 1, 1 through 4. So that whole passage on the Word, while the, wor- the phrasing can get a little tricky and <laughs> describing it to someone can, can get tricky, it is validating that Jesus is divine. Really, the whole book of John does that. The whole book of John's purpose is saying Jesus is God. That, if you want to put a tagline on, hey, John is about the divinity of Christ. Um, Hebrews 8, 1, or 1, 8 through 10, which we'll look at here in a second. In John 20, 28, um, this is the story of doubting Thomas. Remember Thomas, the disciple? Jesus was crucified. All the disciples retreat. Um, people come to the disciples, say, hey, Jesus is risen. And Thomas says, I'm not going to believe that unless I can put my hands in the holes of his, of his hands and his feet and in the wound on his side. That's the only way I'm going to believe this. Um, he, his, his faith was absolutely rocked in who he thought Jesus was because of Jesus' death. And so when people come to him and say, hey, he's risen, he's like, I'm not going to, I'll believe it when I see, I see it, so to speak. So Jesus comes back to him. He doesn't, uh, he comes back physically. He sits down and eats with his disciples. And Thomas puts his hands in the sides and in the hands and feet of Jesus. And his response is right here, John 20, 28. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. He affirms him as you are God, directed towards Jesus. Um, Jehovah's Witness might use this verse to say that, that they'll have a hard time with this verse because they say that Jesus was not God. Jehovah's Witness will say Jesus is not God. But if you point them to this verse, you say, that's awfully hard to say that this does not affirm Jesus' divinity. There's also a really cool painting by a guy named Caravaggio of Thomas putting his fingers in the side of Christ and saying, yes, you are, you are God. Um, Hebrews 8.10, these are, this is the author of Hebrews is quoting two Psalms here, and he's affirming that Jesus is superior to anything, any revelation ever received. 
Um, but to the Son, he, God says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is looking back at the Psalms and saying, Look, God says to the Son, your throne, O God, will last forever. Therefore, God has set you above all your companions. And he says, in the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth. That Jesus did these things. That Jesus is divine. He is who he claimed to be. Um, Jesus, is, the Son, is fully God. So the Father is God. God is, uh, the Son is fully divine. And God, the Spirit. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 2, we'll talk about the work of the Spirit. Um, Jude 20, 21. Jude only has one chapter, so you just cite the verses. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, you pray to God. You don't pray to anything other than God. You don't pray to angels. In Revelation, um, John attempts to pray to an angel, and an angel stops him and says, you don't pray to me, you, you pray to God. You don't worship angels. Um, that praying or worshiping anything other than God is idolatry. Worshiping the created over the creator. So when, right here in Jude where it's saying, look, you pray to the Holy Spirit, that this is affirming the Holy Spirit's deity. You keep yourselves in God's love. You wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring etern- eternal life. That by building yourselves up in your holy faith, you're keeping yourself in God's love building yourself up in faith by praying to the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11, these are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except for their own spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except for the Spirit of God. That the Spirit is fully divine and He is, uh, he is God. So we have, they are distinct. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are fully divine. They are equal. Or they are, um, sorry, they, they are uh, fully God and equal. Um, and then there's unity. There's only one God. So hold on. And I know this, is, this might be making your head hurt right now, but we're just getting through the, getting through the, the pieces, and then we're going to put them all together. This is, this is not difficult to affirm that there is only one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, when God speaks to Israel, this, this little passage is called the Shema, which means listen in Hebrew. God's saying, hey, listen. This is what I'm commanding for you. Hear, listen, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and your, all your strength. God is one. There's only one God. There aren't lots of different gods. There's one God. Isaiah 45, 5 through 6. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that the rising sun and the setting of its place, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So these are our boundaries that we have. This, this is, this is where, where the game's being played, so to speak. This is inbounds. God is three persons. He is distinct. Each is fully God. They are equal. And there is only one God. Every time that we try to explain God as the Trinity, we have a tendency to break out of these boundaries. So we say, okay, to make this easier, I'm going to, I, well, okay, I'm just going to need to bend this one a little bit so it can stick in my mind. I'm just going to have to push against this one some so I can really understand this and get my mind around it. But this is where we are. This is our boundaries. And when we try to simplify God, often is when, is, I know this is a big word, heresy happens. And Throughout history, the, the tendency of the church is not to make this easier, but to just say, hey, these are the boundaries. We're just, this is what we've got from the Bible, so we're going to hold on to this. 
And, and while it is a lot easier to say, hey, let's, let's make this simpler, the church has thought through this. It has worked through each of these boundaries breaking, and it's saying, no, hold on, time out. Let's reset. So, okay, it's kind of like, I want you to, if you didn't get a chance to talk through analogies, let's do it. I know we've all heard an analogy that the Trinity is like fill in the blank. Turn in with your table. What is, what is the Trinity like? Is it like ice, water, and gas? Like, turn, what are some good analogies that you've heard to explain the Trinity? Uh, you can turn in and, and, and talk about it. Discuss. Okay, and, and as we do this, I want you to ask this question about each analogy you bring up. Does it uphold distinction, unity, and equality, all three? Or is there an error in any of these analogies? So just discuss this a little bit. All right, let's start coming back in. <laughs> that... There, there are a lot of analogies running around of, hey, this is what, that the best way to explain God is kind of like an apple pie. God is a, I, I heard this one recently, God is like a warm apple pie with all these different parts mixed in and you cut it into three parts. So it has, you're looking at it and it has three distinct pieces of pie, but on the inside it's all gooey and running together. Um, and so some people are like, okay, yeah, that works. Is, um, the problem is with that there's no distinction, that the pie itself is all running together and there's no real distinction in any of the parts. Um, this is a popular one. God is like water. He's solid, gas, and liquid like Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The problem with that is they're never unified. You never have water a molecule of water that is solid, gas, and liquid at the same time. That doesn't, they're not unified. They are di- distinct modes of water. That water is either one or another. I've heard of the three-leaf clover. God, it's like a three-leaf clover. There's three leaves that make up one whole clover. Well, the problem with that is, each leaf is not God. When we say that the Son is God, that means when you see Jesus, you see God. When the, the Holy Spirit who indwells you, you can say He is God. If I take a leaf of a clover, and I can't say, this is a clover. This is a three-leaf clover. It's part of it, but it's not the whole. Or an egg. This is another popular one. There's the shell, there's the yolk, and there's the white. There are three different parts that all make up an egg. But again, you can't take any part, you can't take the shell and be like, this is an egg in its fullness. Or the yolk and say, this is an egg. That's part of an egg, but it's not a whole egg. Um, Another popular one is um, light. That light is a wave and it's a particle. Um, And again, it goes through some of the same troubles that as you're thinking through, okay, are these distinct? Are they equal are they unified that you always run into one of those boundary walls and say oh all right we've stopped short i can't go past this wall i I've, i'm i'm at a loss and so it can be frustrating to try to come up with a simple way to describe the trinity but jimmy said it well in the back it's because we're trying to explain the transcendent eternal almighty god who created everything trying to explain him by his creation and what we can see in our own finite way, trying to explain the infinite with finite. And we're going to have problems when we do that. We can say God is three distinct persons. We can say each person is fully God and that they are one. But inside of that, we're going to we're going to bump into walls because we're just trying to explain things in words that are never really going to get us there. And so there's, when, we, when you break unity, you get this idea of tritheism. And so right now I'm going to go through some of the problems why you don't want to break any of those walls and why we're going to have to stay in some sort of 
mystery, as Elaine said in the back, that there is a, a, a certain amount of mystery that we're going to have to be okay with inside of these boundaries. But if you break unity, if you say, okay, God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are distinct, they're their own gods going around, you have three gods. You no longer have one God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are their own unique divine beings. This makes understanding their relationship a lot easier because you don't have to deal with the phrase three in oneness and really explain that. You just have three. But what you have is you have a pluralism. You have multiple gods. Pan, uh, not, you can, you're going towards pantheism, um, that there are lots of gods out there. Now, this has some problems. If there's no unity in God, can there be unity in creation? Like, if, if there are three gods that are all creating, can all creation speak to God? Like, if the, the one who created everything and created us in his own image, well, how, how did that work? If God's not unified, then how can... We get into some troubles when we start looking at how God has revealed himself. Remember how God reveals himself in, in nature, Romans 1 says that it's speaking to God, there's one God. Well, now there's three. And yeah, what about those passages that say there's one God? What do we do with those? Well, are we just going to throw those out and say that that part of the Bible is wrong? When we start saying there are three unique beings, we start having problems. Not, and, and also this, if there are three, are we supposed to be more devoted to one than the other? Like, do I remember when um, Paul gets upset because some of the people... Oh, gosh, I'm trying to remember what book this is in. I need someone to help me. But when he's saying, you're saying, hey, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and all these people are unifying around someone that baptized them. Well, this is the next terrible step. Do we, do some, are there some people that are saying, hey, I'm of the Father? And some people say, hey, I, I worship the Son over the other two, and I worship the Holy Spirit. You immediately get back to ancient Rome where there's all these different temples that you're walking into. And I know uh, that if you're saying, hey, there are three divine beings, they're all separate, they're not ever unified, that you don't mean that. I'm just trying to take you to the end of that road where this is going to go if you really play this out. That if you lose the unity, you have three gods. And suddenly, your God is not the God of the Bible. Um, Modalism. If you lose distinction. Because we have three different modes of God, you have modalism. And this is, a, this is a popular idea. This is still around today, that God was the Father in the Old Testament. He was Jesus in the Gospels, and now he's the Holy Spirit. So there was God, and then the Son came, and when the Son left, the Spirit came. Well, okay, that seems linear. That seems like it works. And there's um, a group of churches that call themselves oneness Pentecostals that hold to this, that God, they clearly affirm this, that God was the Father, then he was Jesus, and now he's the Spirit, that there's no distinction between them. And it makes the oneness a lot easier to understand, that God is one. Well, yeah, because he wasn't all three of them at the same time. The problem is, was the appearance of the Trinity at Jesus' baptism an illusion? I mean, all three distinctly show up separately there. Did that not really happen? Um, How do we understand atonement? That Jesus came as a substitution, as a sacrifice for us to appease the justice and the wrath of the Father. Because think about this. The Son sent the Father. Isaiah 53 says that it pleased God to pour out his wrath on the Son so that many could be brought to him. That God sent the Son to be atoned for our sins so that God might be satisfied. That the, the, the atonement is inherently Trinitarian. That it requires a distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So how do we understand that? And when Jesus was praying to the Father, I mean, is that... He really wasn't praying to himself, so how was, was he just praying to himself, or was he really praying to the Father? There's a lot of problems with how do we understand this, that there's a lot of verses that look like they're purposefully deceiving us. If God was the Father, then he was this 
the Son than he was the Spirit. And wouldn't it have been a lot easier just to say that? And why in the epistles would they affirm all three? Because that would have been during the time of the Spirit. Why wouldn't they just say the Spirit? So there are some problems with this oneness, um, this modalist idea. And then the when you lose equality, this was actually a full-blown heresy in the 4th century, led under a guy named Arius. Um, Arianism. It's not the same as Arian as you would have heard from the Nazis. It, it's, it's separate from that. Um, but this guy named Arius said, okay, uh, the Son and the Spirit are not fully God. Like, they, therefore, the Son and the Spirit are created beings. They are subject to God, that they are not all fully God, that there is God the Father, and then the Spirit and the Son are separate. They're created. They're, they're, not, they're not fully God. They're not equal. Well, I wrote, if Jesus isn't go, but <laughs> I meant Jesus isn't God. If Jesus is not God, if he is just a created being who came into existence during the, uh, when, when the Word became flesh, if he just came into existence there, isn't worshiping him idolatry? If, that, if that's true, if he is just creation, then how is not worshiping him not worshiping creation over the creator of that creation? And if, if he is just a man, then how can a man suffer the full wrath of God to atone for our sins? And if he is just a man, then, you know, you can go on down the line. If he's just a man, then how many things that he did, I mean, that... that no man can do that. We're affirming, we're saying, hey, he's saying he's God. Uh, we're affirming that we should worship the Son. That if the Son is a created being, then that is the definition of idolatry to create, to worship a created over the creator. How, yeah, how can a creature bear the full weight of God's wrath? And then how can, the, how can Jesus and the Spirit be fully trusted? their creation, if they're not perfect in divinity, then they are finite and fallible. If they are not infinite, transcendent divinity, they are temporary, they came into existence, and they are fallible, meaning how can we fully trust them? They've not been around since eternity past. Can we really trust what they say? So there are major problems when we lose equality. This picture, which looks confusing at first, is probably the simplest image for explaining the Trinity. Let me walk through it real quick. So there is God, okay? The Spirit is God. The Father is God. The Son is God. And they are not each other. The Son is not the Father. Father is not the Son. Son is not the Spirit. Spirit is not the Son. Father is not the Spirit. Spirit is not the Father. So they are all God but they are not each other. There's distinction. They are all equal. They are all fully God. And uh, their distinction, they are fully God, and they are unified as one. So, those three points are really what we're going to hold on to. If someone says, hey, how would you explain the Trinity... Now, with your table, look at what you wrote down or what you said. How would you refine what you said? How does that change what your conception was of the Trinity, and how would you... Okay, so if you couldn't hear him, he was asking about prayer. So we pray to God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. How do we pray to one? We're going to get there at the very end. There's going to be one little statement at the very end that you can walk away with that might be the simplest way to understand how the Trinity works. It's just, and, and, and it, I, I will get to your question. I'm not, not blowing you off, but we, we will get there. Um, so an, an, a simple way to help understand this is knowing what the Father does, what the Son does, and what the Spirit does, because sometimes it will be easier to explain what God does as opposed to just the distinction, equality, and the unity. So those are the characteristics that you can hold on to. But, okay, so what does the Father do? This is going to be a, a fly-by overview, 
Um, as benchmark, the course keeps going. There will be classes that are just committed to, hey, what does the Father do? Hey, who is the Son? Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, you'll get into all sorts of um, fun issues. But the Father, number one, is the King. He's sovereign. Psalm 103.19 says, God's throne is established forever. So God the Father, is he's the King. He's over everything. Ephesians 4.6 also said that God is over everything. He's the King. Um, who's in control of everything. He's the creator. That creation, as we saw, was a Trinitarian event, but it began with God. Um, Deuteronomy 32, 6, hey, you were all created by one Father um, who made everything. He sent the Son and the Spirit. He's not, the Son and the Spirit aren't subordinate to the Father. They're not lesser than the Father, but the Father did send the Son and the Spirit. We have that in verses that we've seen. First uh, John four fourteen talks about how God sent the Holy Spirit to you. John fourteen twenty six talks about how the Son and the Father are sending the Spirit, and He's the giver of salvation. So this this is this is the big one. If you want to talk about salvation, how the, all three parts are involved, God is the beginning of salvation. Ephesians one three through ten is great on this, and we do not have any amount of time to get into predestination and free will and all of that. But Ephesians 1, 3 through 10 says, God knew you before the foundations of the earth, and he chose you to be one of his elect. That he's saying this to believers. He's not saying to non-believers, hey, you're either elect or you're not. Like, I hope you are. But he's saying to those who are believers, hey, God knew you before the beginning of time. He chose to give you salvation. Um, Isaiah 40, 41.10 also said that God delivers you and upholds you with his powerful right hand. So God is the king creator. He sends the Son and the Spirit, and he's the giver of salvation. The Son is the mediator and high priest. So he's our, you heard it said he's our advocate with God. Hebrews 9.11-15 talks about how he's our priest. He's absolutely fulfilled the whole sacrificial system. And so he sits at the right hand of God, and because he was a human, he knows what it's like. He knows our weaknesses, knows our struggles, knows what it means to be tempted and to go through pain. And so he sits at the right hand of God and mediates for us and, because he cares for us, and he knows, what it, uh, he knows who we are. He's our advocate. Um, he's the judge, that Jesus will judge all the living and the dead. In Revelation, when it says the Lamb, it's referring to Jesus who opens the scrolls of judgment, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that Christ will judge all. Romans 2.16 gets at this too. Um, He sends the Spirit along with the Father, and he's the means of salvation. So God the Father gives salvation. Jesus is the means. 2 Peter 1.11 will say this. Uh, Luke 2.11 is when, uh, very beginning after Jesus is born, that people are saying, hey, a Savior is born to you in Bethlehem, that this guy from his birth, we know he's the Savior. So he's the mediator, our advocate, the high priest. He's the judge. He sends the Spirit. He's a means of salvation. And the Spirit, there's a lot to the Spirit, but he's the teacher. Um, A lot of people, you ask what the Holy Spirit does, there's, there's not a lot of clarity there, and it might be vague. A good way to think about the Holy Spirit is a flashlight. A good flashlight, when it's working, you don't look at it. You look at what it's pointing to. That the Holy Spirit is our guide. He's our teacher. He teaches us truth in those verses. He's the bringer of conviction. Um, 1 Corinthians and John say the Holy Spirit came into the world to convict the world. And that means to expose what is true and what is false, what is of God and what is not of God. So that we would say, okay, I, I I am a sinner. And he is the one uh, through whom conversion happens, he brings us to God. That that's the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to bring us to conviction, knowing we're sinners, and conversion. Um, he's the giver, Galatians. He's the giver of life. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Um, I think it's all of them. Did I miss one? Um, but he, that those positive um, attributes in life are signs of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians five eighteen through 21 says, hey, anything that good comes from you comes from the Holy Spirit. He gives that. 
um, you that ability. And 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says the Spirit gives you gifts, spiritual gifts and abilities. Um, teaching, uh, preaching, administration. Um, he gave some as apostles. He gave some uh, to be merciful. Um, and he is the power of salvation and of sanctification. That through the Holy Spirit's power you are saved. So that God does salvation through the means of the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity, the Father does, God saves through the Son. So because God has saved us through what Jesus has done by the power of the Spirit. So someone at, this, is, this is just simple. Boom. Here it is. So how does God work? The Father does through the Son by the Spirit. How should we pray? To the Father through what the Son has done by the Spirit. And that's scriptural. When Jesus says, hey, you asked me how to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We pray to God the Father. Ephesians says that because of what Jesus has done, we can boldly approach the throne of God. That through Jesus, we can now come to God and pray to him through Jesus, our mediator. That we don't need to speak to a priest. We don't need to speak to um, someone in particular to get to God. That we have access to pray to God, the Father, through what the Son has done by the Spirit. That, the whole, that no one, uh, I think it's Corinthians says this, that no one, and John says this, that no one cries, Lord, Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. That, you, that it's not in a sinful person's ability to cry out to God other than the Holy Spirit's empowerment. So prayer, when you pray to God, you pray, Father, in the name or through the authority of your Son, by the power of your Spirit, amen. That would be a biblical formula for prayer. And you are praying trinitarianly that a lot of people will pray jesus or father or spirit i don't think there's anything sinful about that but the biblical model is father through the son by the spirit um gosh i had something right in there father does through the spirit by the son that is just a how does he save father does through the spirit by the son how did god create the Father did through the Word by the power of the Spirit. That every, lot, almost any major event, hey, this is how it's working. Boom, boom, boom. You know, a lot, a lot of religions will claim that Jesus is a major figure. Christianity is not unique in that way. Islam will say that Jesus was a good prophet of God. But in Surah 5 which is a chapter of the Quran. Jesus does look at Allah and say, I never said I was your son. I never said I was God. I, and um, Muslims will, do not believe that Jesus died on the cross because Allah would not do that to one of his prophets. So he's a major figure there. He's a major figure in Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses say, yeah, Jesus was a major figure, but he was Gabriel who came to earth. And he, uh, Christians really got it wrong. He's not God. And so when you pray Trinitarianly, you are affirming equality, distinction, and unity. And you're really, when we say, hey, I know I've said this last two weeks, that Jesus is the exact image of God, his full representation. You are upholding that in the way you pray. And the way you say, hey, how did creation work? How does salvation work? That you are affirming Jesus in his true nature. You are affirming the fullness of God in who he is, which is awesome. And next week we get to talk about, hey, how does the Trinity change everything? How does it, how does it change who you are as a person? The way you love people, your community? Because you're made in the image of a Trinitarian God. You were created by a Trinitarian God in His image. You are saved by a Trinitarian God. You worship a Trinitarian God. That should change everything. And it's real, once you see how this matters, it just... Whole new world, which is going to be a lot of fun to talk about next week. But here, I want to... I, this is the Nicene Creed. This was written right after Arius. Arius was getting a big following. 
So some church leaders came together and they said, all right, let's describe the Trinity and let's, let's affirm this together. And you'll notice there's not much about the Father because there's no question the Father is part of the Trinity. There's a lot about the Son saying, hey, Jesus is a part of the Trinity. And then there's a good bit about the Spirit. But I think it'd be great if we could read this together and just affirm what we believe about the Trinity. Let me drink some water first because my mouth is dry. Okay, here we go. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made, and for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now, the word Catholic may have given some of you all pause. Yeah, yeah, okay. Catholic, the word Catholic, its dictionary meaning is universal. And so when, I, when we say, hey, we believe in one holy Catholic church, we're saying we believe that all believers across the world are one church, one body of believers. We're not saying that we affirm the Roman Catholic expression of what a church should look like. Little C, not big C. Very good. So Catholic, you, you could say we believe in one holy global or one holy universal church. This is what they wrote in the third century, or fourth century, middle of the fourth century. So when you say that, you're just saying, hey, I believe all believers are members of the same body of God. You're not saying I am submitting myself to the authority of the Pope and the Catholic Church and um, all of their doctrinal beliefs. So don't let that give you too much pause. But that's it. That, that creed, that will give you the roles and what we believe about God. But if you want to walk out of here with just some simple bullet points... A trinity is three qualities. There's distinction, there's equality, and there is union. And if you want to talk about how the trinity works, the Father does through the Son by the Spirit. Two nuggets. Hey, explain the trinity to me. Okay, well, there's three qualities. Unity, equality, distinction, and they work. The Father does through the Spirit, or through the Son by the Spirit. That is a simple clear way to just tell someone, hey, this is what the Trinity's like, and they may want to know more, in which case you may have to go back to your notes, but that is, that is a simple way just to walk out and say, I, I, if someone asked me about the Trinity, I could tell them about it. And if they wanted to know more, I could pull up the Nicene Creed, and we could read it together and talk about who God is. So, it, I mean, it's all written online for you, too, the Nicene Creed, if you want to find it. You don't have to come up with all of that off the top of your head. So that, that is simple. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get out of here. Um, five minutes early, but hey, it's raining, and the traffic's going to be bad, so why not? Father, uh, we come to you today in absolute humility, uh, in thankfulness that you've given us minds that can understand and mouths that can speak, eyes that can see, ears that can hear, so we can try to explain you in the best way we we can. We thank you for your Son, through whom you've saved us. We thank you for your Spirit, who seals us, who has brought us to you. 
who has given us more than we could ever imagine. Thank you for your Son, who's our sufficiency through your Spirit, who gives us more than we can, than we've ever wanted, and richly has blessed us. God, we pray that as we go from here, we would have the opportunity to share what you learn. That this theology isn't something that we just sit down and talk about over, um, over coffee with friends, but this is something that we can use to further spread your glory throughout the earth to the lost and to people who don't know fully who you are. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We pray that we can be lights for you and um, ambassadors for you in our daily lives. Please give us the opportunities to do that. Pray this in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks for coming, everybody. Have a great week.